Welcome to ABA on Tap, where our goal is to find the best recipe to brew the smoothest, coldest, and best tasting ABA around. I'm Dan Lowry with Mike Rubio, and join us on our journey as we look back into the ingredients to form the best concoction of ABA on Tap. In this podcast, we will talk about the history of the ABA brew, how much to consume to achieve the optimum buzz while not getting too drunk, and the recommended pairings to bring to the table. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and always analyze responsibly. All right, all right. Mr. Dan, we are back to another edition of ABA on Tap. It's been a little bit of a pause. Weddings, illnesses, kids, family stuff, you know, all those things that cause a good pause for the ABA on tap. What do you call it? The uh, COVID-23? COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't know if, I didn't know if you were going to go there, Dan. So, Dan, uh, I, I've officially uh, deemed Dan as the first COVID-23 patient. <laughs> He's been uh, sick for a couple of weeks, and not to make light of that, I'm glad you're feeling better. You sound better. I know you might be taking a little a little uh, side face pauses here as you sure. cough a little bit. We appreciate that here on the tap. We keep it live and unfiltered. Try not to blow out anybody's eardrums. <clears throat> Hopefully, yep, turn away, turn off to the side um but yeah dan is the uh, official the unofficial first world patient with covid 23 i'm convinced it was covid he took all the tests necessary they were negative so <laughs> i took all the covid 19 tests see what i mean it's important for us to be very precise and scientific here you were trying to detect covid 19 when in fact sir you've got covid 23 <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless we're back very excited this was a um, an episode that we've been planning for a while and hoped to do in april due to the autism awareness month um, got pushed back a little bit to may better late than never uh, yeah. let me uh, let me pass it to you for a little bit of introduction maybe a little preface and then let's jump right into it cuz super excited about this one this is kind of our i feel like our comfort zone in the tap over the multiple years that we've been going about this now of looking at criticisms of ABA, uh, trying to look at the validity um, while respecting the individual, because that's certainly their experience. Look at the parts that we can bring back to the field and say, hey, as a field, we need to improve this. And maybe looking at the parts that maybe misrepresented into the field uh, or misrepresentative of the field as well. Yeah. So this comes, uh, we have to thank the algorithm, right? The, the, uh, <laughs> the ever powerful algorithm. I'm not sure which algorithm, the algorithm, though. <laughs> The one that puts you know autism news across my news feed, um, and this one might be a, a little bit politically charged, right? So the algorithm knows to put criticisms of ABA <laughs> across my news feed, um, and this one came across is from Autistic Science Person, which is a website, um, so I guess sort of a blog with a lot of posts, and this one for April was deemed specifically. Autism Acceptance Week and Applied Behavior Analysis. And we'll and link this in the uh, description, correct? Absolutely. The link will be in the description. We want to make sure that we cite our sources specifically. And the, the we, we've entertained a lot of criticism on ABA on tap. I think we've gotten, you're absolutely right, it's, it's become our strength. We've become better at, at truly analyzing and dissecting, not refuting. And I think that's an important distinction here. And and the reason this particular article caught my eye um, is that it, at least the author uh, identifies as, as an autistic person. Uh, very, very well written, very you know impressive writing, very, very well uh, described responses and emotions. And then more importantly for me is that the author has taken citations from an actual uh, treatment plan uh, that is as recent as this year in February, I believe, to, if I'm citing correctly. Sure. And these are things in a treatment plan that that immediately I identified as as traditional approaches, things that I know work, things that maybe you, me, I've moved away from a little bit in our more recent practice as we as I've explored, you know, early intervention and 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 the mix with early childhood education best practices and sort of trying to, for lack of better phrasing, normalize our treatment and the way we treat our clients. Um, so maybe not things that I would necessarily do anymore, but things that at least still sound very reasonable that this author is able to refute and dissect and criticize pretty harshly. So we, we have another harsh criticism here. It's, it's not easy to get through those. Again, we've gotten a lot better at refuting. It's not our 
role to refute here as much as to try to inform and advise otherwise. We do not have any doubt that this author here had a very poor experience with ABA treatment. That is clear. <laughs> and, yep. and, and we can't yep. take that away from this individual. Absolutely. However, we will take a stand on the idea that all ABA is the same. I think all ABA is derived from a similar philosophy of science, but then uh, your ABA is a little bit different from my ABA. Absolutely. And, and uh, I think that the intent um, and the humanity, if you will, that it's being applied with is a really important variable that we will undoubtedly explore. So I've unpacked a lot. I've <laughs> talked a whole lot there, Mr. Dan. Let me throw it back to you. What, what were your initial impressions? What, what are you thinking? Yes. So this will be our, I believe, fourth-ish um, a review of critiques of ABA. Our first episode was kind of reviewing the LOVAS um, study and kind of looking at that and seeing how relevant it was and more of the general critiques of ABA. Then we looked at Alfie Cohen um, and looked at that uh, critique of ABA, which was another harsh um, criticism of ABA. We looked at Chloe Everett, who was our first kind of experience of somebody on the spectrum, um, maybe speaking not so, uh, reflecting not so uh, admirably about her experiences with ABA. And this will be our fourth uh, kind of looking at that situation, as well as um, our second um, discussing or reviewing um, somebody with autism's experience of um, ABA. I will say um, there are a couple of things that I just want to highlight, and then I want to get into some specifics. But one of the things um, that they say is ABA rebuttals, the field has changed. And you mentioned that your ABA is different than my ABA, is different than anyone else's ABA. So I do think there is validity in saying that the field has changed or that an individual got one experience of ABA. Um, So that's like saying I went to McDonald's and that's going to be the same as Burger King or Chick-fil-A or something like that just because they're fast food restaurants. There's some similarities and and things like that, but everything's going to be a little bit different, both within each McDonald's and then comparing McDonald's to Chick-fil-A to Burger King, um, et cetera. So because there's not uh, there is the BACB and there's a board that governs everything, but they don't go out and oversee each individual practice. They are only there for egregious uh, ethical violations for the most part. Everyone's ABA is going to be different. So yes, the field has changed. And also everyone's ABA is going to be a little bit different. While we do represent the field of ABA, um, and we should all do that with that level of um, significance, Every because everyone's is different, this one person's experience is not necessarily representative of everyone's uh, experience it's representative of their own experience you um and and, and 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 these analogies can get a little tricky you know we're not trying to dilute the the importance of the science or the the customer's experience or what have you and I, and I completely understand where you're coming from so you made me think about that there and the idea that we're talking about fast food restaurants in your example we're talking about Things that are all sandwiches, for example. Yep, some yep. are burgers, some are chicken sandwiches. <laughs> and then, you know, it's, it's, it's like a massage therapy, right? Somebody's going to appreciate and benefit more from deep tissue, and then others are not. So um, one, one thing that's very prevalent here that, that, you know, I like to talk about, that I like to stay away from, the idea of withholding reinforcement or withholding potential external or extrinsic uh, motivation. And that was a huge theme of this article that we'll get into. Yeah, yeah, and... and um, it's it's one thing to say you're withholding indefinitely, which I, I know traditionally has, has been something available to us that can be problematic. And then there's the idea that you're creating a motivating operation only in as long as the learner is within a specific stress zone, right? So once you've withheld so long that you tip over into distress and now we, maybe we're erroneously going into our extinction mode... Yikes, that's a lot to unpack there. Maybe we'll come back to that. But that's not unforeseen. Then, yeah, yeah, I'm going to agree with the author. We've probably lost a huge opportunity there, right? And not to say that that in and of itself is going to be traumatic or abusive to the learner, but perhaps an abuse of ABA, something I want to talk about in terms of a misuse. So he's talking about abuse toward the learner with a circumstance like that. And I think what you and I are going to talk about today is the potential 
abuse of ABA techniques yes. by doing things like that, not reading your audience, not dynamically gauging your learners' distress or stress levels toward optimal learning, knowing that we come in with an idea in ABA that the exact behavior that we need to occur, if the child doesn't make the sign for more, then that trial is lost. Where the other side of what we've been exploring on ABA on tap and, and professionally speaking, developmentally um, uh, looking at the idea of modeling or the idea of presenting the information toward the incidental occurrence of that envisioned behavior such that we can pounce and differentially reinforce a variety of communicative behaviors toward that word for whatever item we're withholding. So, again, I've unpacked a lot there. Um, because there's a lot to unpack. Really enjoyed this article, and I'm glad we've got it. I, I, we'll need to find more about this uh, individual who's putting up this website and see if we can't. We've put a lot of invitations out there to talk to to critics, Dan. We've yet to have somebody uh, take us up on one, so maybe this will be our first. Yes, and and I think again, I want to stress that um, within these four episodes that we've done, kind of reevaluating the field, we have taken. Uh, I can say. Um, personally, we've taken a lot of these strategies, brought them to our company and our company is different. And the way that we implement different uh, way that we implement ABA is different as a result of these articles. So there's some positive things that they have done to the field, or at least our representation of the field on the flip side. Um, you know, we also are trying to defend the field in some areas as well. So we're, we're critiquing the field. And of those things that we, have said, yeah, these things are valid. We need to fix. We actively go and try to fix them and have case manager meetings and discussions about how we're going to fix them, specifically citing these articles. On the flip side, um, some of the critiques that we don't find is valid. Again, I would really encourage any of you that feel strongly about them. We really want to debate them. We really want to discuss them with you. Unfortunately, we have had people come and express these feelings on Facebook comments and things like that, but don't want to take the time to discuss them. So without further ado, please um, reach out to us and we'd love to have that discussion, if nothing else, so that we can be more informed and deliver a better practice. Going back to what you said, you covered two grounds before I get there. Did you want to add? Um, You were talking about withholding, which I think is going to be a general theme of today's discussion and review because that's a general theme of the article. The second thing you talked about was the dangers of a structured practice. And Jennifer, who, uh, if you haven't checked out that episode, please check out that episode with Jennifer Stevens. It's one of our most popular episodes. Talked about the BCBA that she was training that wanted the, the standard practice. So give me the sheet of what I, what I do when I'm with a client. That's one of the things that we run in danger of uh, in the field is autism is such a diverse diagnosis and everyone's going to be different. So having a standardized practice is going to potentially get us into a lot of trouble because now we're trying to use procedures that aren't necessarily going to be individualized for each individual. And we can run into trouble with that. So when we talk about withholding, which is going to be one of the procedures that is constantly referenced in this article, I think there's um, some maybe hyperbole a little bit in this article. Um, So I want to differentiate between the hyperbole and the things that maybe are systemic in ABA. So I'll read a quote here. It says, if a neurotypical parent withheld water from their five-year-old kid until they answered a calculus problem, would society in general consider that abuse? I have to think that's a little bit of hyperbole. Um, I don't think anybody in ABA would recommend uh, withholding water or something that's going to be important for an individual's livelihood contingent on something that trivial like a calculus problem. So I I do want to highlight some of these things. Now, I do think there's a point that they're trying to make within there that's relevant. Um, But I think sometimes when we take it to this level of hyperbole or, um, you know, exaggeration, it then creates a picture of ABA or creates a narrative, which people then read that and almost take it at face value and then create a perception of something that's not accurate. I was gonna, I'm having a hard time not being facetious here, only because I was going to say, hey, I'm really impressed that a five-year-old knows calculus. <laughs> but I, but, but I, I don't want to, to your point, <clears throat> you're absolutely right. It's, it's these exaggerations. Almost. Maybe with chat GPT, they might know calculus. <laughs> it's these, ex- oh, we're going to have to have a whole episode on chat GPT and people's <laughs> behavior around that. But um, I, I wanted to, to make a slight, uh, a very nuanced point here that I think is important. So... When we're talking about withholding, if a neurotypical parent 
or, or the parent of a, a neurotypical child, I think, is what the author is also trying to, to communicate here, um, withheld water from their thirsty child, right? So it doesn't say thirsty child. If it's one thing, if you're putting a child in a hot room, um, you know, made them run around, now sit down, and I'm not going to give you water until you get this calculus answer correctly. Okay, I exaggerated there a little bit to make it seem a little worse, right? Yeah, that sounds terrible. Now let me reframe that for you. I'm going to sit with my child, my five-year-old, my amazing five-year-old, <laughs> to do these calculus problems. Prodigy. <clears throat> okay. And every time they get some aspect of the problem or the whole calculation correct, I'm going to offer them water. Is that a completely different situation? Or have I described exactly the same situation in many ways and just shifted the focus a little bit in terms of the withholding? And I think that that's something super important that it's difficult. I'm going to credit our experience in the field, our time grinding and, and, you know, in deep dives and and, and rigorously looking through things and trying to improve our practice. And I think that's something that that younger professionals in ABA need to understand. It's not about you in an authoritarian way having this instructional control. You can't do anything until I tell you. It's about looking for the opportunities to deliver said reinforcement when it does occur, whether your SD is directly linked to it or not. And that's tough. That's not easy to figure out. Yeah, I, I agree, and I really like that delineation. I guess the only thing I'll slightly push back on is I think that term water creates like a little bit of cringing. If we were to say like chocolate milk or if we were to say money, because a lot of people are incented, once water comes in, then it's like, oh, is this if this person never does the calculus problem, are we therefore withholding water forever to a point where it's going to be detrimental? Um, so I said, that's, I think that when this person maybe specifically chose water, I think they did it to create maybe a significant reaction. For sure. For sure. No, Um, I agree. And I think that again, that's why it lends itself so nicely for me to that shift and saying that it's as easy as saying that, yes, we are creating a motivating operation, assuming that the water has anything to do with them being interested in calculus in that point in time, which is, again, I can dissect this all day, right? I don't want to get overly philosophical about this point, but I do think that that the author allows us as behavior analysts in this point, in this moment, to get a little philosophical, a little bit silly almost, and how how far we dissect this example yep. to realize some of the problems, some of the true problems with this hyperbole. I, I think you're right. It's hyperbole, but if... It's not far-fetched. These things do happen, right? People do find the idea of a motivating operation with something that is functionally completely unrelated to the actual behavior. So let me take that same argument and just reframe entity A. and uh, We can even keep uh, entity A, you know, the first then. So first calculus, we'll keep the calculus. Then you get paid. How many... <laughs> Neurotypical, yeah. ASD, whatever, offer money for good grades. Why? Because the prefrontal lobe's not developed at age 5, 10, 12, that maybe an individual doesn't really care about getting good grades. So what? They get incented by money. I don't see there being a huge backlash about paying your child for good grades and that being an ethical thing. So let's take out the water, replace it with money. The same premise is there, one different motivator, and I think it'll have people look at it in a totally different light. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly, again, I think that's the important part of this particular example is being able to turn it over on its head. And the the, the main point for me here being is you want to create a flow, yeah. right? What, what this author is describing here with the water is going toward a power struggle. The idea that I know as a learner, you're struggling to vocally communicate. So I'm going to withhold this toy that, or this balloon because you said, buh, recently. And now I'm holding the balloon over my head and saying, say, balloon, balloon, balloon. And the child's looking and reaching and looking around and looking at the balloon and pointing to the balloon. Getting increasingly air- frustrated. Right. And then all of a sudden the child melts down or loses interest. But we think we've done the best ABA possible as opposed to, waiting two to three opportunities for that vocalization and then after that waiting for that part that child to do that slightly emphatic reach toward the balloon where their finger points out and you go yep here's the balloon why because you pointed at me because you shifted your gaze toward me it wasn't the only singular target 
that was going to give you access to balloon to to the balloon to sort of refute the author here because he talks about the eye contact, right? Eye yep. contact, gay shift. I think there's an important difference there. We've covered it, I think, pretty well here. I won't get into it now. But the idea that we're always looking for that microcosm. There is some behavior you're doing here that I can differentially reinforce, even though I may be targeting something more specific. You know, for me in my particular practice, I've even stayed away from more specific targets toward more general classes of behavior yep. to try and get uh, RBTs to reinforce now with this particular idea in mind. Is it perfect? It is not. Because target target specificity is important. <laughs> it is good for you to yes. know colors if you're a three-year-old and to know the colors as you know delineated in the English language if it's an English-speaking situation. Sure. Um, but at the same time, knowing uh, we have to recognize at the same time that just presenting red ad nauseum in a mass trial until a certain mastery criterion is achieved before you can then get a second stimulus in the field, that is developmentally just completely antiquated and so such a snail's pace that there's no way you're ever going to match a developmental trajectory. So Sure. Um, you, your bubble example resonates a lot because I show a video in my new hire training in my company uh, of actually uh, Laura Schreiman, who I think universally would be considered probably one of the more you know ethical people in the field. She's devoted her life to pivotal response training and how can we motivate these kids a little bit more. Um, she was in an episode of Super Nanny and they were trying to get this uh, kid to use their words and the parent, the kid wanted tickles and the uh, I think it was Schreiman at the time was uh, basically having the parent withhold giving the kid tickles until the kid said tickles and the kid specifically did say tickles in the episode, but it does highlight, and this is, this is, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, um, that that's still a, we're going to withhold the reinforcement until the behavior is omitted. And I think you're talking about even in those 10 or 15 years, we're maybe looking at a, you know, a way of differentially reinforcing other behaviors or a gradation of behaviors that let's try to find a way to reinforce this before we lose the motivation, get into frustration, and now we've we've lost everything. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if you want to expand on that or if we want to get into maybe specifically, uh, might be a good time to read what the, um, the recommendation was that this person um, is referencing with their critique. Um, go ahead and, and, and let's quote the recommendation there. I, I do, do have mind? a... Oh, go ahead. A closing... Well, I'm going to try to develop a closing point towards something you said in sort of striking the balance between withholding and finding opportunities to reinforce differentially. I think yep. that's the dance we're yep. talking about here. Because, yes, there's a great deal of importance, value, if you will, in being able to offer reinforcement to the occurrence of a behavior as envisioned uh, through the, the, the lens of social significance. As we also know that from an antecedent perspective, there's a lot of value to modeling said behavior repetitively at nauseum. Sure. So what is the balance sure. between those two things, knowing that if, it, if the behavior occurs as envisioned or somewhere close to an approximation, yes, that is our, that's our jam, right? That's where we're like, yeah, we reinforce that behavior. But then learning to realize that there's a whole bunch of other behaviors that we can emote, that we can model toward the emission of that, uh, you know, more idealized behavior. Yep. You might be catching a little bit of uh, special effects here in the background. <laughs> um, here it's at the uh, reptile studio in my, my teenage son's bedroom. Um, next door would be my two-year-old daughter. <laughs> and uh, she is not wanting to nap. I think she understands that there is an episode of ABA on tap being recorded. <laughs> she wants to be in the mix. So if you hear... You hear a two-year-old crying in the background. Just know that it's all being uh, very, very kindly taken care of by my lovely wife. Are you sure your wife's not withholding water? <laughs> I'm positive. I'm positive. <laughs> I'm positive. That child has blankets, water. She had a snack. You saw it when you came in. <laughs> um, Mike, uh, you have the article up there. Um, would you mind maybe reading the kind of the protocol or the, the structure? The bubbles or the milk? Which is um, the, uh, either one. Maybe just okay. um, it's they're both pretty short. So let's yeah. read both situations uh, really briefly, and then we can kind of talk about them in their entirety. So the situation, first situation, is the adult has blown some bubbles and has then waited to give the child a chance to respond. The means, is the, this is defined as the means. The child usually communicates by reaching for the object he wants, 
but with encouragement, he can also give brief eye contact and vocalize. Okay. It's nicely described. Again, one of the reasons I like this article. The reason is the child wants more bubbles, the opportunities to be created. The child reaches for the bubbles, but the adult holds them out of reach and waits a little longer for eye contact. As soon as the child attempts to communicate by giving eye contact and vocalizing, the adult responds by modeling bubbles and blows the bubbles. All right. So again, even even for, for me, the... Uh, the anti-traditionalist <laughs> in ABA with an uphill battle, you know, the majority of my career in trying <laughs> to, to, to blend these developmental pieces, this doesn't sound bad to me, but this author takes issue with it, and we understand why the author takes issue with it. So go for it. What, what are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are I really love the differentiation that you have uh, brought about at our company and program about eye contact and gay shift. Okay. And I think that the joint attention piece. So if we're forcing eye contact, probably then, then we start to get into ethical issues. We start to get into the communicative issues that I think we should talk about a little bit later about how people may just communicate a little bit differently. And because we associate eye contact doesn't necessarily mean everyone needs to do it the exact way that we do. So I like your delineation between gay shift and eye contact. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's pretty much... Uh, it for this this particular point. Um, I've got a lot more on the second situation. Uh, well, so let me let me jump in for a Please. second here again because I, I really find this a nicely described scenario, right? Yep. That could be very effective. Now let's talk about what might be missing, and I'm not being yep. critical when I say what might be missing, but I'm talking about all the permutations, the dynamics of life that are going to make this little scenario, this little script that was written, it's going to make it go impromptu, right? It's, it's going to be, it's not going to run exactly like this. So that is to say that one of the things that is being implied here, I think, is the child can reach for an object, can point to an object, can look at an object, and or vocalize that object's name in order to mand and receive the object. Okay. Okay. We could differentially reinforce any of those. How? By the amount of time we blow bubbles in response, by the number of bubbles in response that we blow. <laughs> now, do you want a child of any kind or a human being who is learning to communicate effectively to never look at or physically reference the object they're manding for? Or is there value, even if you vocalize, to be looking at the object that you're vocalizing the name of? Yeah, there is, right? Yeah. Both of those conditions And looking fit. at the person, too, right? Because yes. as they get older, if they're communicating into the abyss, how is anyone going to know how, when we talk about yeah. the speaker or listener, how is anybody going to know that they should be the listener in that situation? So in that sense, any of those things could be, right? It could be that, that you as the listener know that I'm trying to grab something else as I'm saying, give me the bubbles, give me, or show me more bubbles. Or I could be looking away as I point toward the bubbles behind me and telling you bubbles. Or I could just be saying bubbles. Any of those situations has a social significance. Now, ideally for a child, we're going to want them to look at, point to, and say the word. That is the big prize, right? That is the sweepstakes. That doesn't mean it's going to happen that way every time. Yep. Yep. So we have to be ready as the listeners, as the adults in the situation, the technicians or what have you, to differentially reinforce that somehow. Now, as I'm describing that, what does that do? That ensures, that ensures a continuity in the flow of play, which means naturally you've eliminated withholding. You've kept things going. Yes, which is going to be a huge, huge theme. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk yeah. more about the withholding okay. on the second one. Let yeah. me uh, pass it back to you. Let me, let me read the scenario. Yes. So thank you for letting me talk about that. Of there. course. Okay, the situation here is the adult has placed the, placed the milk on the table, but purposefully not given the child a straw, which kind of implies that the child is really partial to a straw in this situation. Yep. Okay, we, we call that a motivating operation, is that? Yep. <laughs> the child can communicate nonverbally by pointing and is starting to use a few single words. The reason the child is thirsty and she has got her milk, but not a straw. So again, implying the child will not drink this milk without the straw. The adult waits for the child to initiate interaction. The child points at her milk and the adult then gives the child a choice. Do you want a straw or a plate? Showing the objects. The child points to the straw and the adult gives her the straw, modeling the next step by emphasizing the single word straw. You need a straw. The child is not expected to repeat the word at this stage. So again, 
does not say even me as a pretty harsh self critic of ABA. <laughs> this does not sound uh, unreasonable to me. So talk to me. Yes. So I'm going to read part of the criticism um, and then let's address it. So it says, let's focus on the second situation first. So that milk situation that you just read, as this may seem to be the most obviously cruel. This guide tells the parent to put the milk in front of the autistic child while they're thirsty, but without giving them the straw to drink it. Then the parent is supposed to wait. Yes, wait. Not prompt the child. Not ask the child if they do to do something. Not communicate with the child. Just wait. The, the goal is to force the child to initiate interaction as if there's no other possible way for the person to initiate interaction with their parent. Then the child initiates interaction because you know the child is thirsty and the parent is supposed to force the child to do a task, whatever it is. The child is required to point to either the straw or plate. The child must point, um, not explaining why this is important, to the object, which is the straw. Of course, it doesn't say what to do if the child points to the wrong object. And then it gets into a little bit <clears throat> more things. So I want to talk about kind of the micro and the macro of, yeah, their, uh, yeah. of their retort here. So on the micro, um, I think there's a, a couple things that are relevant. I do think waiting isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world because if we're prompting the child, now that man becomes an introverbal. Now that child is responding to our SD, not the milk is the SD. So now we almost kind of become the motivating operation, them pleasing us or them responding to us more, the SD, than the milk is. And I think it is important that the milk becomes the S, the milk remains the SD and the MO because when we're not there to say, what do you want? We want the child to be able to communicate. So I do think the, the retort here is a little bit misguided when the person's actually trying to communicate something. I have to disagree a little bit yeah. um, with the fact that the, the initial prompt isn't there. Now, a prompt is certainly going to be important if the child doesn't have any, any way of communicating it or doesn't know the appropriate response. That gets into language mapping. Like you've been so um, eloquent in describing throughout the, the time here that maybe we don't withhold for for that item maybe we prompt oh you want the straw and we give we give them the straw a whole bunch of times with that language model or i'm drinking with the straw we present that over and over and over again with the reinforcement without that expectation so i do think that's um that's an important discrimination first on that that first paragraph of making sure that the milk becomes the mo and not uh, and the sd and not us before we get into the second one let me pass it to you mike um one thing that makes me so as often when we face these situations, we get the criticism, but we don't get the answer. So I don't know what resolved this author had a bad situation with ABA clearly. And I, I can respect that. Uh, I wish they had included what it was that resolved or ultimately got them to whatever zenith they're at now to be able to write so eloquently because they must have engaged in a different therapy. I don't hear them discussing that here. Sure, okay? sure, of course. Um, and then, yes, you know, fair criticism on that scenario that we described, but not something unforeseen or unnatural, meaning that here I am running around as a parent, I see my child wants milk, however they is they ask for the milk, or this is the time that they usually get their milk because they've been outside playing, or a number of circumstances that as a parent I can think of serving milk for. And the notion that I might in a hurry serve the milk and forget the straw. That seems pretty natural to me, and I don't understand why the contrivance is such a problem for this particular author, other than they must have had a similar circumstance that was that left them without milk for you know an extended period of time or whatever the case may be. So again, you know, even in, in, in what you described and sort of keeping more of a of a workflow or a play flow, the idea that you might have created a routine now at a certain time after a certain activity in which you go with your child and you open the refrigerator with them and you grab the milk and you pour the cup of milk and then you grab the straw. And then one day you inadvertently forget, I love the way you put it, that now becomes the introverbal. We've been doing something in such a routine fashion, in such a systematic fashion over time, that at some point when you, mom or dad, forgot, or therapist, forgot this one step in this chain, I reminded you. Yeah. That's one of the hallmarks of childhood learning is those moments where those where kids remind you like, hey, this isn't the way we do this. Hey, we're driving down the street. This isn't the way we go home. You took a wrong turn because there's a detour today. 
some of our clients have, you know, uh, protest behavior, if you sure, will, inquire sure. about that, because they are so accustomed to looking at that routine or that behavior change, that the chain, that sequence that they're familiar with. So, yes, I can see the author's point here and saying, you know, it doesn't have to be done this way. But again, I, I really do think that this was a, a bit of an unfair criticism. Yeah, um, I think so. Going from the micro to the macro, just to make sure that we don't miss the force from the trees in this example. I wonder if the author is not necessarily focusing so much on the milk straw example, but saying that he didn't like or she, I think it's a he didn't like the way that his entire environment was made contingent on his behavior. Yeah. So yeah. while, while you're saying the milk straw example might be completely natural, right? Maybe you're fixing your kid um, uh, a meal and you forget the utensil or something like that. Yeah. There, each example in its individuality makes sense. I think potentially maybe what this author is saying is, okay, that's the exception to the rule where you forget it. Yeah. But maybe with individuals with right. ASD, now that becomes the rule. And now you're intentionally forgetting everything. And now they have to communicate to get everything. And their entire environment is made contingent. So I think that's one of the important points that is made by this author in not setting up overly obvious contrivances. So the idea that what we can learn from this criticism is that we keep the flow. We create routines, something we've talked about early on here on, on ABA on tap, such that the natural variations may occur for the child to then man for or uh, pitch the introverbal for to move on. Unfortunately, we get a little impatient. We already have a situation where there's a develop, quote unquote, a developmental delay. So the idea that we have to contrive and incite or elicit these behaviors becomes a real detriment at times for our better motivating operation as interventionists. So again, I'm really trying to find a way to better describe that dance. We have, we need those contrivances. We need to analyze those natural opportunities in order to manipulate them. And then to the author's point, how far are you taking that? Are you being too obvious, too overt, too authoritarian with your contrivances? Yep. And, and, and then you're killing the session flow, and now you're decontextualizing, if not A-motivating the circumstance. So, again, right. while we, you know, yes, pretty harsh and unfair criticism to start, I agree with you 100%. We have to analyze a little further, dissect a little further, and really understand what I think the author is saying here, which is very important. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the we run the risk of being overly structured as a field of saying, because something may be good in one situation, withholding for communication doesn't mean we need to do it all the time, every time. Another thing that I I don't know, when I read this, this sentence, I almost felt like the author contradicted himself within the same sentence. He said, the goal is to force the child to initiate interaction as if there is no possible other way for the autistic person to initiate interaction with their parent. I almost feel like that's contradictory within the same sense. Is the goal for them, I feel like what he's trying to say is the goal that the parent's trying to set up for the child is them for, to, for them to initiate interaction in the way that the parent wants them to interaction initiate interaction. Judging by the next paragraph, where he says, um, he talks about the child is required to point, to point for the straw. The child must point as if there's not other ways to communicate. So I think what the child or what the author is saying, instead of the goal is for the child to initiate interaction, it's for the child to initiate interaction the way that the parent wants to initiate interaction, which I do think there is some, uh, if you were to word it that way, I think there's a lot of credence into what he's saying, which we'll get back. So going from the micro of this specific interaction, uh, example of the milk going back into the macro of communication. And uh, my buddy who's a therapist um, brought this to my attention, as did a parent who comes to our parent groups, um, talked about the movement of looking at autism and ASD as not necessarily like a mental disorder or DSM diagnosis, but as just a different way of looking at the world, which kind of gets into to communication. So Talking about, you know, this person initiating interaction, well, maybe not pointing, but maybe they're crying. That's initiating interaction. Maybe they're looking to grab, but we're only looking for, we're only counting interaction as, you know, pointing or vocalizing or something like that. Whereas there's a plethora of different ways to initiate interaction based on, you know, if, um, well, what would the word uh, straw be in Spanish? I don't speak Spanish that well. Pajilla, popote. Okay, so that would be a way of initiating interaction, or I could say straw, right? So there's multiple ways, or I could say it in Chinese. There's all sorts of different ways of initiating that interaction. 
The question's going to be, because communication is Skinner defined is from a speaker and a listener, how am I going to be able to initiate an interaction in a way that a listener will understand? I do think that part is important. I like that. So you're going in, see, this is the kind of balance I've been trying to strike and I'm continuing trying to strike is I've made a clear decision to shift from um, adult-directed to more child-directed pieces. And this reminds me a little bit of the idea of reciprocal imitation, right? So the, the notion that I've set up, a, I've contrived a situation, a learning scenario, and I'm looking for a certain level of communication. Or let's take joint attention or, uh, as another example. Gay shift, pointing to, reaching for, bringing the object to. These are things that I'm prepared to entertain as reinforceable, if that's a word, actions, right? But I have to be ready to see anything else that occurs in the environment from that learner that might also fit that description based on the environment's response, right? And I think that's part of the trouble. That's that dance that I've been trying to discover is, yes, we have to come in with some level of structure and direction, and then we have to come in really observant of everything the child is doing towards seeing any sort of natural occurrences of communication that could be reinforced as they exist already and then shaped toward things that may expose or express more social significance, right? Absolutely. I love the idea of individual autonomy. I love the idea that I can do whatever I want without anybody getting in my way. But at some point, if you and I have to be in the same space or interact... We're going to have to have some common ground. And that's where I think, yes, we do come in with the common ground. And a lot of times, unfortunately, we might get stuck there traditionally in ABA is whatever targets we define, whatever things we're looking for as those things that are on the developmental charts and the milestones, this is the way communication is supposed to look. And if it doesn't look this way, then it's not worth reinforcing. That might be where we get stuck sometimes as opposed to saying, well, the child points, the child reaches, the child brings objects. If the child coos, oh, you know what they tend to do? They tend to blink their eyes sometimes, mom said, when they want something. Let's give that a shot. Let's see if we, if we reinforce that behavior, can we shape it somehow towards something that is going to be more easily reinforced by a, less, a more standard and less specific um, environment, if you will, less individually catering environment. The author talks a lot about this notion of getting ready for the real, real world. Yep. Yes, that, that's maybe an overly general statement. I may have walked right into your plan here. I love it. I love <laughs> You're good. That serendipity, baby. So that's the idea. Yeah. There, I understand the author's frustration with that phrasing. At the same time, I understand the validity and the value of that phrasing. Yeah. They do say one of the ABA rebuttals, preparing autistic children for the real world, is one of his segments in this article. And um, like you say, I do think that ABA practitioners and uh, the forefathers of ABA did do this from the, the premise of how can I allow this individual or how can I help this individual be most successful in the most environments in, in the real world? And maybe we did get lost in the weeds a little bit of, okay, well, in the Euro Western culture, the way that we communicate is we stand directly in front of each other with eye contact. Sure. And let's say in America, we speak English. So that's what, those are the targets that we have to teach. We have to teach appropriate posture. We have to teach direct eye contact. We have to speak, teach vocalization. And I do think that came from a place of if an individual is able to do that, they will be probably most successful in the majority of environments that they'll be in. But on the flip side, what makes that that right or wrong? It's kind of like, you know, somebody from China comes and starts speaking Mandarin. Is that right or wrong to do here? Well, it's not right or wrong. But the premise is, how is this message going to be communicated? And maybe we, on both sides, I think that the detractors maybe need to take a, a, a step back and say, okay, maybe the intentions were good. Maybe we got a little lost in the weeds. And us as practitioners, maybe we could look at and say, are there, can we differentially reinforce other things? Can we be a little bit more flexible in the communication? What if the individual isn't looking at me the entire time? Do I know that they're speaking to me? Maybe if they're using an ASL or maybe they're, if they're using um, a speech device, maybe if they're pointing, are these all ways that can effectively communicate that I can reinforce rather than, as this person said, ABA becoming a uh, breeding ground for meltdowns? I like um, that quote, actually. So I, I think, again... It's not this or that. It's this and that. It's probably not bad that we really focus on these things because on <clears throat> I think we're kind of trying to fight two battles at once. We're trying to fight the micro battle and the macro battle. So 
on the macro level, should the should all of us become more aware of individuals with autism and not necessarily force them to be in our box? Absolutely. I think that's the case. In the meantime, that individual, that specific individual is going to have to learn some way to communicate for those people while they're learning that. Like, again, if that, if I'm speaking with somebody and they only speak Mandarin Chinese, do they need to learn English? Do I need to learn Chinese? Well, somebody has to learn something for us to communicate. And the, the thing is, we have to come to a common ground of being able to communicate first before all of society learns to help, um, you know, learns to accommodate more. And I think it's that that's an important thing to, to keep in mind that, yes, society absolutely should do that. And we should keep that in mind and not necessarily force these people um, with autism diagnoses that may communicate differently to fit into our box. But in the interim, for that individual person to live the most successful life and have the most effective communication, we have to have we have to find some way that we can interchange thoughts appropriately. Let me uh, take or a step back. Yeah, absolutely. Let me take a step back here to this quote about the breeding ground for meltdowns, because I know that's something that I've, uh, I've sort of alluded to in the past in the sense that, that our techniques are sometimes the antecedents for these meltdowns. And then very conveniently, we're able to point back to the diagnostics as the reason that sustain these meltdowns and these, uh, this overflow. So this idea that, that he, we're withholding, we're not reading our crowd, now the child starts crying uncontrollably because they're frustrated, but the reason that they're tantruming is now the autism. And it's like, well... No, it's the fact that <laughs> we are in our labs with our petri dishes breeding, literally breeding meltdowns, right? But I thought what? that's what you were going to. No. <laughs> the literal breeding ground where we have them in our, our highly controlled labs where we're figuring yeah. out how yeah. we can breed these meltdowns most effectively. Yeah, that's just it. Yeah, if we're not careful, that's so this is the way this author is perceiving that, right? The idea, so yes, and I, and I understand the, the, the argument with intent, you know, whether you intended to or not, this is this author's perception of it, but you're absolutely right. It's it's We have to be careful that we're not inadvertently constructing or construing ourselves as the people that create those as learning opportunities, right? Standard disciplinary approaches would say that, well, they have to learn, they have to feel, let them cry it out, you know? Okay, there's a time and a place for that for sure, but traditionally we've, we've maybe perpetuated that a little bit too long and then now we're looking at this data for tantrum or protest and it's, you know, trending in the wrong direction because it's increasing. We're blaming that on the diagnostics when, to the author's point, there's probably things we can do on the front end to not get there. Yep. Now, is that stress? Again, can't, we're going to have to do an episode of the, uh, on this at some point. But there is a lot of evidence from neural networks um, in learning that talks about the need for that level of stress. Not distress, prolonged distress, but that level of stress toward learning new things. So the idea that somebody's going to be uncomfortable to the extent to which this author cites things like PTSD or the idea that somebody's going to be uncomfortable enough towards some motivation to communicate in a way that can be readily reinforced by the environment, such that stress is alleviated, and now they learn that by taking this action or making the sound, they can access something that they desire. Sure. It's a really fine, super, super fine line, right, to yep. try and figure out. And I do think that that I can look back at my career and... And, and think of many situations where I was on the wrong side of that line, where Me I misconstrued too. the notion of, of, of uh, motivation and probably pushed a little too far, probably withheld a little too long. And again, how do we not withhold? How do we create motivating operations, but not get to the point where somebody like the current author is going to be construing that as withholding? You know. And the last thing I'll say, uh, because I do want to get into the withholding part, because that's the second part. So last thing I'll say on this communication piece is back when the author was talking about the, the straw um, and, and not, instead of waiting, prompting the individual to communicate for the straw, I think that's actually a, a slippery slope because I can even find myself being victim of prompting kids to communicate and maybe they're not even motivated by that. That's us making a big assumption that we know what that individual is motivated for. And now if we're prompting an individual to communicate for something they're not motivated for, I'd say that's actually a much larger ethical issue than, than waiting them out. Um, but I do want to talk a lot about the withholding um, aspect because I know that's a big part of this article and a big part of kind of our specific therapies. Um, but before I do that, anything you wanted to... Go right wrap in, up sir. on communication. Go right in, and we are just a little time check here. We're about ten minutes out from our usual end here, so no need no need to, to rush or 
All right, no need for urgency. We'll just stay mindful. So go yes. right ahead. So it says ABA rebuttals. We don't use punishments anymore. And then at the end it says... Can I stop you there for a please. second? Again, misnomer there. Of course we use punishment. We don't use things that are traditionally regarded as punishment. But if we ever implement anything that leads to the reduction of the emission of that behavior, we've used punishments. So I just want to clarify that because, again, I do think that even this author, who's rather eloquent makes some comparisons between rewards and reinforcement and now this idea of punishment that that is not fully accurate. Go right ahead. So the quote in the end of that, that section is, if a neurotypical parent stopped in the middle of an activity and withheld the fun activity until a neurotypical five-year-old kid put their hand on a hot stove, would our, child, would our society consider that child abuse? Well, well number one, yes. I... I <laughs> I don't know how much the BACB does in terms of individual like oversight of, of companies, but if we're making individuals burn themselves contingent on something, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's child abuse. So again, I think that's one of those hyperbole examples. Very much so. That's why I chuckled. That that's a little extreme, but I I, I get the point. Okay. That I do want to to highlight um, again, going from the micro to the macro. This this being in the micro, when people use these extreme examples, it paints a picture, and I think I need to call out. This individual, because I agree with a lot of what this individual is saying, but when they take these extremes, they kind of lose me. So, yeah, I think everybody would call that child abuse. And if somebody um, is doing that in ABA, that's that's not the uh, ABA that I would like to be associated with. And that person could be reported to the board. That being stated, I think the larger issue here is the withholding of an activity. And you had a really good, when we were talking in a, right before we recorded, about kind of the difference of withholding um, an object. Maybe an individual wants something and you're um, holding out a, a few seconds to give it to them versus maybe coming and taking something and then making that contingent on it. Sure. Uh, so I'd like maybe if you could bring that up. And the last thing I'll say, maybe you can also talk about this. I do remember one of the clients that you started working with recently, um, you actually had a discussion with them about withholding and they said something along the lines of, you're not going to come just take all the, my toys from the kid and make them work for him or something along those <laughs> lines. So I think those two things you could shed some really good light on. Yeah. Let me, let me, uh, let me make sure I'm remembering everything correctly. So um, th- these are actually related circumstances, right? So the idea that traditionally you might see, um, you come in, you see that, uh, say, an autistic child has taken a strong liking to an object, which is not unforeseen for any young child who has a blanket. Sometimes our clients uh, take to other objects. Uh, so the, you, you, can, you can assign some level of preference or desire for that object, and then suddenly you're seeing that as your motivator, right? The, you're going to take that item away because if they want that item, there's reason for them to demand or communicate for it. And... <clears throat> You know, the difference that you might see that item lying by itself and are able to uh, obtain it, uh, the idea that you might be able to trade for a different item and then have that child ask for that item back, or the idea that you playing overpower the young child (laughs) and take the item from their hands, which is what I think this author would be highly critical of and something that you and I work very, very hard uh, in, in training our younger professionals and saying, there's no need to do this in order to contrive your next trial. There's at least the other two ways I mentioned first to do this. And yeah, recently, um, one of the clients that came to us from another provider, um, for various reasons, uh, you know, in, in discussing sort of our approach, and I like to tell prepare people for our approach, look, what we do is going to look different. If you've had a different provider, this is going to look different. I'm going to ask for your patience now. We're a little more child-directed for these reasons, so on and so forth. And as I was explaining this to this parent, she said, so you mean you're not just going to come in and take something that he's enjoying away from him so you can do something else? And I said, no, we'll never do that. That's I mean, not ABA, though, Mike. Right, well, so again, <laughs> and this, this is such, a, such a, a nuanced misconstrual, right? The idea that as a young professional, you're going to come in and see, oh, they like that. Let me try to get that in my possession such that I can motivate them to do something. When I describe it like that, it doesn't seem that bad. But when that's been going on for 45 minutes and the child is kicking, screaming, and reaching for the object, and one of us is sitting there withholding it you know, above our heads, behind our shoulder, that, the optics there are pretty bad. So you know, there's a lot to learn from there. It's not that withholding something dangerous, for example, of course, 
that's for safety reasons. But if, if you're withholding desired items that are otherwise acceptable for the reason of perpetuating more trials, please think again. Please, yep. please go back to your to your supervisor. Go back to somebody. If that's their answer, please tell them to, to report themselves to the board <laughs> and get a little more creativity going. Yep. Um, please, please. This is something that, that by and large, I'm going to, you know, again, the author lends some pretty strong and unfair hyperbole here toward it, but, but I think the essence of it is not lost. If that's what you're doing to motivate more trials... Go back to your the drawing board and think again, please. I think so much of that too comes from the more antiquated trial based or DTT method of Absolutely. ABA of work and break. And what we're going to do is we're going to do some work and then you get a break and that's away from me. Interesting. That's with an item that you want. And then in order to get back to work, I need to stop your break and take what you want. So there's no way that you could be enjoying reinforcement along with me. It's got to be solitary, which means that that the actual work we're doing can't in and of itself be reinforcing only the time away exactly. from me and away from the demand. That exactly. is a, I, I know that's not the message we're trying to send. Uh, that's yeah. a really, I love the way you describe that. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty simple. That's, that's all that is, is that, that withholding makes sense in that more antiquated. I'm going to take something that you want and make it contingent on something I want, but I can, I'll speak for at least our, our company. I can't speak for the field, which is going to be the last thing I'm going to talk about in a minute is, I think as we do more naturalistic therapy, the work is the play. And we don't need to withhold anything because we're, if, if the child's not motivated by what we want um, them to, what we want to engage in, we're going to find a way to make them motivated in it by not taking what they want or by not taking what they're doing, but by making what we're doing more exciting. So like you said, if, if our RBTs are doing ABA the way that we're prescribing, then we're not withholding anything. So all of this is kind of out the window um, because we're not withholding. It's just making, uh, taking what they're engaging in and making it functional or trying to make what we want more engaging than what they're already engaging, engaged in. Now, that being stated, obviously, things like the iPad and stuff like that can be um, a little bit challenging, but we're not often even withholding that. We can engage in that, and there's a lot of nuance with that that I think we can talk about a little bit later because that goes down a whole nother avenue. But I'll pass it back to you because I know you've kind of led the charge and I, I really am excited about how little we do withhold. And you, you've kind of been the, uh, the conduit of that with our company specifically. So I'll give you the final words on withholding because you are the resident expert on that. Well, what I'll say here, because we've, you know, we're, again, we're coming close to the end here, and we can always, we, we run the place. We've got the right to go over here. We can, <laughs> we can allow ourselves. I think your daughter uh, would disagree with that, but maybe she, I think she's settled in. I'll, okay. I'll try to speak a little more quietly here <laughs> as we wrap up. Um, the idea, there's a couple of things that the author does here. Um, I have a, a lot I want to say here in the last few minutes, so I'll try to, to make it succinct. Um, I, I'm going to say that, that uh, number one, I want to thank the author of this article for speaking out and, and making their opinion known. While I may disagree with the overall notion of the evils of ABA that are portrayed here, I, I have no doubt that this author had their own experience and is really citing about the things that, that we need to be mindful of in terms of changing as science practitioners. So I'm going to say, go ahead. And uh, just piggybacking on that, that this is the author's experience and in no way are Mike and myself saying that's not valid. I, I do not feel good that a field that I am a part of left somebody with something that they call PTSD from that, that service. So whether that's representative of everything, um, whether that's accurate, whether this individual even necessarily understands what the alternative would have been, it doesn't matter. This is that individual's experience, and that is unfortunate and something that doesn't make me proud to hear about in the field that I currently am, am employed in. Now, thank you for saying that. I mean, that's, I... Mean, I, I, I like to think, and I'm quite certain, 99.9% certain that none of my former clients are out there with PTSD. I hope that is true, and, and I agree with you 100%. It's awful to, to, to learn about this representation. Now, something we've been going back and forth on in this episode is, is uh, you know, and, and to the authors, uh, to quote the author here, ABA practitioner saying, the field has changed. I'm going to say something. Please. You know what? The field hasn't changed, nor should it. What does have to change are the practitioners that are promoting that field, because we want the we don't want the science. The science works, and the science should only lead to more philosophic doubt, to lead to new science that either proves or disproves what we're doing. And we've proven that what we're doing works. Now, to the author's point, 
whether it works or not isn't what's at stake here. It is how it works and how it's done. Yep. So you and I are saying we're confident that, yes, the author has a lot of valid points. And guess what? It doesn't have to be done that way. But it does baby in the bathwater, right? Sure. We're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I agree. I think some new bathwater would be really nice here. Yes. And I, that's one of the things that we like to talk about um, here on ABA on Tap. The other thing that, that I know that... That's is, a great point with the ahead. baby in the bathwater. You could take a bath in ice cold water or nice warm comfortable water. Either way, your baby's going to get cleaned. cleaned. But the process of going through that might yeah, be like really it. more comfortable for both you and the baby. And, and what's available? What's available? Yeah. Do you have warm water? I mean, again, I don't want to overanalyze this, but that's a wonderful point. The idea that the value of the experience and how you endure it as opposed to contrive it to be uncomfortable toward learning is what we're talking about here. There is a certain level of discomfort that's required. Stress, if you will. Even you stress the idea that I had a frustration or a problem and I solved it. A lot of intrinsic motivation in that situation, despite it starting in a way that didn't look so good. But the idea that we're actively promoting or a part of enduring, um, if not applying distress toward motivation, I think is what the author can uh, should, should get a lot of credit for, for describing here. Um, the last thing I'll say is that currently... Uh, and I appreciate all the, the, the accolades that, that, that you give me in sort of, you know, uh, promoting these ideas of more child-directed, more play-based therapies, especially given my role in, in early development. Um, but I have to say that, that there's still an active question for me. One of the things that's really worked, for example, this past week, started a new client. And just with our rapport-building techniques that I've talked about here uh, on the podcast in terms of contingent imitation toward reciprocal imitation, um, linguistic mapping and joint attention, we got the child to start referencing over the course of two days. So the idea that now they're shifting their gaze over toward the staff in an effort to kind of say, hey. Unprompted. Unprompted. Hey, I just got up and I'm walking away from where you are. Are you coming or not? Which is exactly what the child was waiting for because they would stop and look back, right? So the idea that we've now not prompted, that we've used these these very basic techniques that are much more a part of early childhood education, I hope would be a concept that might interest this author here with these very harsh and not entirely unfair uh, criticisms. But I still need to answer the question is once I've got that joint attention built and once I've got that sustained attention, then there are things that are going to be adult directed and target specific that are important toward the development of a human child, yeah. right? So the colors, the numbers, the letters. But one question that I'm still trying to answer for myself is how do I bring that back in without falling into some of these traps that the author is talking about where you're not patient enough to wait for the development of the skill and you're actively just trying to contrive based on extrinsic motivation. Yeah. So I don't think we've got it wrong in ABA. I think that we put all our eggs in a couple of baskets that are now being highly criticized it's not to say that we got to throw everything out. I think it's just we're actively trying to find new and improved and innovative ways to apply these this, this, these technologies, this science that, again, to start with my original point, we don't want it to change. We want these calculations to be what they are. We want positive reinforcement to stay what it is. It's how we apply and administer that the techniques toward that procedure that are going to be the important frontier. That's a good point. I never thought about it like that. Like astronomy hasn't changed, but our understanding of it sure has, or biology, right? We've made some adjustments and we've made some corrections, but we don't want this. Yeah, we don't want those to go away. We want to know what those are. Yeah, yeah. Or same, you know, medicine. Like we, uh, if if somebody would have, you know, invented the polio vaccine a hundred years ago or hundreds of years ago, like they wouldn't have polio anymore. But our understanding, the science was always there. Our understanding of it wasn't. I think that's a really important point. That's a great example, right? So we've had the polio vaccine. It did it job. We don't want it to change. We're just going to have to re-administer it now because there's going to be a resurgence otherwise, or we're going to have to make sure and continue to administer it in a certain way or adapt the administration of it to make sure that polio stays at bay. And as... As something is around longer, the understanding of it increases. So um, that's another thing this person should look at is if they're saying ABA is the worst and we're going to start with something else, well, whatever that is, is going to be fresh. And now you're going to have all the growing pains of a whole new field that we've had to, you know, that's probably going to be much worse, at least in the growing pains before it even gets to where we're at now. So I, I do want to highlight this, this last piece um, where he says, you know, ABA rebuttals, the field has changed. 
You will hear this argument a lot from ABA therapists and other therapists who use ABA. The field has drastically changed. We don't do that anymore. And to say to that, I say this paper was given to a parent in February 2023. You can't get much more recent than that. I have to push back a little bit on that because I am in the field and I can say in the last three years, our the way that we deliver ABA in our company has changed so much to the fact people have left our company because they're like, this isn't, you know, the ABA that I'm used to. We've gotten in a lot of discussions and debates, both contentious and, uh, you know, happy um, about the, the way that it's gone. So our company has changed specifically in the last, you know, three years, much less the last seven years we've been there. So to poo-poo that and say the, the field or the, the delivery hasn't changed, that is 100% incorrect. Now, that might be correct for that person's experience. So I, I really just push back when people try to say, oh, the field of ABA is this. No, the field of ABA is a lot of different people's experiences. Some might be great. Some might not be great. This is one person's experience. And absolutely, this is this person's experience and it's relevant and should be considered. But this is one person's experience. And maybe even you have a maybe this person will push back and say, well, I have hundreds or thousands of people that agree with me. Well, there are what 10 million as of when I made my training like eight years ago, there are over 10 million people in the world that have ASD. Have we consulted all of their experiences as well? So while this is one person's experience, and while maybe one company within ABA didn't change, maybe 10 companies within ABA, maybe 100 companies within ABA haven't changed, that doesn't mean that other companies haven't changed and that other companies aren't doing it significantly different than one company. So I think when this person is presenting it, where I push back on is when they say, the field of ABA is X. No, you don't. I don't know what the whole field of ABA is because I don't experience every single person's administration of ABA. That's what I have to push back on. So if this person were to say, my experience was this Boom. and look out for these within the context of ABA, totally, totally good and reasonable with that. We don't necessarily have to throw the field out because this person doesn't know if their experience is representative of the entirety of the field or if their experience is representative of their experience. And that's what gets me a little bit upset is when they try to <laughs> generalize their experience as representative of everyone's experience. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, sir. That was a great way to wrap it up. Let me see if I can conceptualize it very, very simply. I went, I had a toothache. I had to get a root canal. And the first dentist I went to botched it. I went to the next dentist and they fixed it. So what you're saying is because of the first dentist, I shouldn't write off the entire field of dentistry. Exactly. And always analyze responsibly. Cheers. Cheers, brother. ABA on tap is recorded live and unfiltered. We're done for today. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. See you next time.